Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with BC teachers and calls for a province-wide vaccination mandate. Should BC teachers face mandatory vaccination? The teachers union just surveyed their members on this, also asked teachers their vaccination status. Let's discuss now with my guest, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. And I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Terry, thank you for coming on again. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Good morning to you. So let's talk about this survey that you just completed with your members, which I think is really, really interesting. What did you find out? First of all, let's talk about vaccination status. How many teachers are vaccinated? Sure. So our survey indicates, and and I will say that there is a high level of accuracy uh, in terms of uh, the results. Um, 94% of teachers are fully vaccinated, and a further 1% of teachers um, have had their first shot and plan to get their second shot. There, we had 2% of teachers uh, that didn't want to answer the question, which is completely understandable, and 2% um, that indicated that they weren't vaccinated, nor were they planning to be vaccinated. Okay, so that's a very high vaccina- vaccination rate among teachers, and how does that compare to, let's say, regional averages in the, in the various health districts? Well, in every single school or regional district, and so we were able to segregate the results by uh, local health authority, and every single health authority has a minimum of 91% um, vaccination rates. And, you know, Vancouver Coastal, for example, is a bit higher than the 94%. And so that's a, a, a good uh, 20 points above the provincial average. So teachers are definitely vaccinated at a much higher rate than the average um, population. Okay, what do those results say to you? What, what, what is that, when you see that number, 94, let's say 95% really, when you consider that some teachers got their first shot and will still soon be getting their second, that's very high. What does that say to you? Well, it says that teachers are really doing their part in terms of keeping everyone safe, um, including uh, getting vaccinated. And we anticipated that it would be a very high number. Um, this really is aligned with what we're you know, hearing an- anecdotally and the experience that teachers have had uh, in classrooms. You know, BC schools were open for the entirety of last year, the only jurisdiction open for the whole year. Um, and so teachers are also uh, very used to working in an environment where they don't feel safe. Because another component of the survey, which is concerning, is that 46% of members do not feel safe in schools this year. Um, and that is uh, a consistent number um, uh, uh, over the course of the couple of years that we've been uh, surveying members. Um, and it's a very high number also. And so, you know, we are quite concerned about teacher mental health, a full uh, 82% uh, said that they, or 80%, I should say, said that their mental health had worsened over the course of the pandemic. And that's consistent over three surveys that have been conducted over two school years. So that's very concerning. All right. Speaking to Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, you also asked teachers in this survey about mandatory vaccination. Should there be a vaccine mandate for teachers in BC, make it a condition of employment? What did you find out? 
So those numbers were also very high. So we um, we asked the question, should all adults be required to be vaccinated in, in the system? And so by all adults, we're referring to all school staffs and all volunteers. And 82% said yes, agreed with that statement. Um, and 67% strongly agreed. And so we also feel that that is a very high number in terms of supporting a provincial um, vaccine mandate. Okay, your union represents the teachers in the system, of course, and there are support workers in the school system represented by a different union, CUPE. And I spoke to the president of CUPE recently on the show about this precise topic, Karen Ranaletta, on mandatory vaccinations. And it was interesting what she had to say. Let me play this clip here for you, Terry, and get your thoughts. This is Karen Ranaletta, president of the CUPE union, represents school support workers. CUPEBC has supported the efforts of the PHO um, in their fight against COVID-19. And, um, you know, we see this, uh, a vaccine mandate in K-12 as the next logical step to protect uh, our members and our communities. Okay, so you want it. You want mandatory vaccination. We are in support, yeah. Okay, so you've got the BC teachers, uh, BC teachers now very clearly saying they want mandatory vaccination. You've got the union for the support workers saying they want it too, bring it on. Why is this not happening? Terry. Well, I, th- I think in part the problem is that there isn't any provincial mandate. And, and I really want to be clear. What we don't want to see is a patchwork approach to this where individual school districts make the choice to either put in a mandate or not put in a mandate. Um, we think this uh, puts a lot uh, on the shoulders of individual school boards in some communities where there is high uh, levels of hesitancy and and pushback against uh, the health measures. We really do want to see a provincial mandate if there's one put in place, Um, and so that it's uh, the same everywhere as well. It's really hard to explain why these approaches could be different from district to district, and we're already seeing some concerning things around uh, employers surveying members. Um, We have some concerns about the protection of privacy, and that all needs to be sent really organized uh, in order to make sure that it rolls out in a way that protects privacy and protects our members' rights. Okay, so you want to see a provincial mandate on this, right? Like you would like to see the province step up and lead on this rather than, you know, like it's like they're downloading this to the school districts. I mean, John Horgan said the other day, well, you people ran to be school trustees. You put your hand up, so go ahead and lead on this and you guys figure it out. I mean, what do you think of that? Don't you think this, is, this should be a provincial decision? Well, we think it should be provincial, and there's two yeah. ways for that to happen in our view. Government is one, and the provincial health office order could be another. And so, you know, there are a couple avenues here. Um, we're concerned, of course, that if it's just uh, district by district, that the areas of the province that need a mandate the most won't implement one. Yeah, you know, in the areas right. where there's already high vaccination rates will. Um, and, and we're also concerned, quite frankly, about the impact in small communities uh, where these discussions are happening. We're already seeing some concerning things in some parts of the province. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean a lot of, um, you know, cer- certainly there's a lot of emails f- flying around right now, but we're concerned about the um, the impact, you know, that, that some folks that feel very strongly, um, either in favor of mandatory vaccinations or in opposition to mandatory vaccinations. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, in parts of the province this conversation, and we're seeing um, protests 
you know, it, yeah. it can be quite divisive in, in communities. And so, you know, you don't want to see school either trustees or teachers, for that matter, or district administration caught in the middle of that. Right. Um, and, and we're starting to see, you know, some evidence of that, and we're concerned about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could have school board meetings disrupted or school protests or school board protests, and that's something that you think that could be largely avoided if the province stepped up and said, look, you know, we don't want a, this patchwork district by district system here. We're going to lead on this. Let's bring in a provincial mandate. Right. Yeah, we, I mean, we yeah. feel strongly it needs to be provincial. It's hard to explain. It would be hard to explain why, you know, some districts would have a mandatory vaccination policy and others wouldn't when, well, you know, the, the working the, conditions are quite similar across the province. Yeah, well, the province, I guess, is arguing that it's the school districts are actually the employers in this case, and it has to be up to the school dis- uh, district by district because they're the direct employers of the teachers, not the province. Well, right. and that's, that's true. Um, and so the way around that, of course, is the provincial health order. Right. Um, you know, there, there's also, you know, in our view, there, there also is likely some kind of legislative solution here. Um, and we're certainly encouraging one to be found. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk affordable housing now. How can we create more housing that non-millionaires can afford to buy, especially in the city of Vancouver? Well, I'll check out what they're doing in New Zealand. This is really interesting there. The federal government there in New Zealand is moving to end single-family zoning in five of the country's largest cities. So this is an effort to encourage more housing Uh, the new zealand government bringing in a bill it would allow property owners to build up to three housing units on a single family zoned lot in some of the largest cities in new zealand including auckland wellington and christchurch should we do the same thing here let's discuss now with my guest brent totter and former city planner for vancouver i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show hey brent Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about what New Zealand's doing? Well, New Zealand gets a big splash because they do it at a national level. But we have to remember there are no provinces or states in New Zealand. And New Zealand in its size is pretty much the equivalent size of British Columbia. So it would be the equivalent of British Columbia doing it. And if British Columbia did do something like that, it certainly wouldn't be the first. More and more states and even Canadian provinces are already doing that. It's would probably surprise most of us to learn that Ontario is ahead of us on this. Ontario, several years ago, mandated that all local municipalities in the province allow at least two accessory homes within the primary home. And California just this year passed legislation requiring local municipalities to do something very similar, duplexes. And Oregon, which includes Portland, which is a city that's often compared with Vancouver, did something very similar. So it's not unusual. You almost can't swing a stick these days without hitting a state or a province making this kind of move. Because, frankly, when it's when it's done very slowly over time by local municipalities, it doesn't move fast enough to address what's usually referred to as the housing crisis. Right. And as you mentioned, Brent, there's something similar going on in Vancouver. And this was pointed out yesterday uh, by Andy Yan uh, from Simon Fraser University. He was on the Jill Bennett Show. Let me play a short clip of him, get your thoughts on it. So here's Andy Yan yesterday with Jill Bennett. 
when we look at this type of rezoning, you also have to look at really what's already been done and where it's been done. Uh, in a place like the city of Vancouver, we haven't really had single-family home districts since about the late 1980s. Um, you got to remember that in the late 80s, we legalized secondary suites, and then in about the mid, the early, uh, the early teens, um, you know, uh, just before 2010, uh, we allowed for laneway homes. So then uh, most, most uh, properties in the city of Vancouver, when it comes to single-family zones or previously single-family zones, uh, actually allow upwards of three suites already. Okay, so laneway homes already allowed, secondary suites allowed. I think you can build a duplex in Vancouver on a single-family lot now, can't you? That's right. I think Andy was a bit off on when secondary suites were brought in, but he's quite right. They've been allowed as of right for a long time. Then I was chief planner when we did laneway housing in 2009, and then in 2018, duplexes were allowed. And that kind of illustrates Vancouver is by far the most progressive city on this issue in the province. And that even illustrates how slow it can tend to be at the municipal level, even in a progressive city like Vancouver, because we went from secondary suites in 2004 to adding laneway houses in 2009 to duplexes in 2018. That, it kind of perfectly illustrates why states and provinces are thinking about this. If even the most progressive city on allowing these kinds of housing takes that many years to get to duplexes. And right. let's be clear, there are many, many municipalities in British Columbia that don't even allow secondary suites yet. Not yeah. even that. So that kind of illustrates why, when you're looking at it on a province scale, Vancouver might be already there. But that means most of the other municipalities aren't even close to being there. Right. So would that be the argument there for some leadership from a more senior level of government? So let's take your illustration and say maybe the provincial government should lead on this, maybe pass a similar law to what New Zealand has done and saying, look, this could apply to all the major cities uh, in, in British Columbia throughout Metro Vancouver, Greater Victoria. Maybe that should be allowed all this land that's currently zoned single-family zoning. Like, like how much of these cities are, are single-family zoning right now? It's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. It's surprising yeah. to most people to, to find out that the majority of the city of Vancouver, before all of these moves, was, was still single-family. It was still low density. Yeah. And that's, that's very different than the so-called suburban municipalities. Now, a lot of the suburban municipalities are urbanizing, uh, building density around transit, for example. But the majority of the suburbs are, are locked in tight in the law that they can only do a single, fa- a single detached home. So, and a lot of us live in the suburbs. A lot of British Columbians live in the suburbs. So it's, it's not just the cities per se. It, and that's why when, when states or provinces make this move, it is all about the larger numbers because the, you, can, you can have the more progressive ahead of the curve cities doing something better, but that's still a relatively small percentage of the overall population, a relatively small percentage of the overall number of detached houses and detached housing zoning out there. So if you take this yeah. issue seriously, and, and to be clear, every jurisdiction that has done this has done slightly different things. And this isn't a one size fits all. Do you allow duplexes? Do you allow just accessory units? Do you do, you do what the mayor has announced, which is allow triplexes? There's all sorts of conversations about what kind of housing would be right. allowed as of right. And, um, and none of those, by the way, are four-story walk-ups or six-story apartment buildings. None of those is that kind of density. This is the kind of density that I referred to in Vancouver as gentle density. It's walk-up 
ground-oriented density, three stories or lower. You've got a direct relationship to the ground. And frankly, the, the buildings tend to look a lot like larger detached homes anyway. So they kind of fit in. Right. And speaking of uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, he was a guest here on the show earlier this week, Brent, and we talked about this plan that he has to allow up to six six homes on one single-family home lot. And here's what he had to say about that uh, to me on Monday. Have a listen. Kennedy Stewart here. Well, there's certain parts of the city that can't be built because, like downtown, there's <laughs> there's none of those lots left. However, the vast majority of the rest of the city uh, there's about 60,000 single-family lots uh, around the city. So uh, there would be a process for application. And that's what I really like about this is it's not top-down, it's bottom-up. You, the property owner, get to decide what you want to do with your property. We'd have a cap on the number that you would do every year. But uh, yeah. once this passes council, we could see this uh, you know, you can see these popping up in neighborhoods all over the city. Okay. I guess one of the arguments you may get in some neighborhoods, Brent, is, hell no, not in my backyard. I. What about the character of our single-family uh, neighborhood? What about the parking? Is this going to be parking Armageddon if suddenly you've got six homes on a single lot? Where are people going to park their vehicles? Do we have the infrastructure of sewer and water to support all these extra homes that would suddenly go into these neighborhoods? How do you deal with that? Well, all of those are reasonable questions in the analysis. The infrastructure question is an easy one to answer. There's either capacity or there isn't. But usually there is. Usually there's a lot of excessive capacity, frankly, already built in, and we're just taking better advantage of that capacity we already have. Parking, uh, we've, we've had that conversation in every context, secondary suites, uh, laneway houses. There's never been Carmageddon. It's always been manageable in the context of, of the kinds of things we're talking about here. So I su- suspect there'll be similar analysis done there. We always have to analyze these things. If you ask me if I thought the mayor's suggestion of triplexes would work citywide right now, my question, my answer would be, I'm not sure. I'd want to look at it and analyze the various inputs. But that's what we did. When we when we looked at the other forms and I think uh, other forms of housing, I think that's what we'd have to do in the context of a provincial right. move. You have to think about the different scenarios around the province. You should think about um, what kind of different variations. For example, Oregon had different rules when they brought this in for Portland, Metro Portland, than they did for the rest of Oregon. So there are ways that you can address some of the differences in context if you write smart policy. And I always right. support smart policy based on some analysis. I'm speaking to former Vancouver chief planner, Brent Totter. And Brent, how do we know that this would create more affordable housing? Like if you take right now a a single family zone lot where you've got one detached home, one family, you convert that or you tear it down, you build something that's got four homes or six homes, like a little mini condo. How do we know that those homes will be affordable i mean couldn't they be just yeah. just as super expensive or people just flip them for profit well i don't know what that last part means everybody when they sell well, I mean, their speculation house, i mean you know right. speculators who would just buy buy a place and then turn it around for a quick buck right and one of the things we tried to do in the previous steps in vancouver was keep the, the speculators out of it and the way we did that is by making sure that the the units actually couldn't be conveyed you know, you have a laneway house that can't be sold separately, for example. 
But um, I, I know in the mayor's proposal for triplexes, he's talk about, talking about specific men, mechanisms, covenants on titles, requirements for a unit having deeper affordability, I believe. So he's trying to address overtly this issue of oh, how do we know they're affordable? But here's what I say to this. The conversation always has to start with the fact that the thing that really isn't affordable in Vancouver is the large detached home. And frankly, right off the bat, if we can convert a large detached home into four homes, two of which are duplexes, which by definition are less expensive than the detached home, and two of them are rental suites as accessory units, which is what's allowed now, right off the bat, you've got units that you can't guarantee they are quote-unquote affordable, but we know that they are more affordable than the alternative. Plus, we've got four homes instead of one, which means we've got more supply. So none of that, all of that helps in a very complex conversation with a lot of lazy interpretation out there. Uh, all of that helps in this large, comprehensive conversation about affordability. But if you want to really establish that it is affordable to a certain price point, to a certain affordability factor, that's when you need special mechanisms. And I think that's what the mayor has talked about in his proposal. I haven't looked at those in detail, but if yeah. you want something that's affordable in a city that's inherently unaffordable, you usually have to go below market. And that's, in other words, below what the market would normally pay. And that's where the kinds of mechanisms that the mayor is suggesting come into play. Hey, Brent, last question for you here. If you did bring in a New Zealand-style system here, let's say the provincial government brought this in and they allowed major municipalities in, in uh, B.C. to homeowners to do this, would, do you avoid um, a rezoning process and yeah. and public hearings and yeah. you know opposition from neighbors yeah that's exactly what this is it's, it essentially when all of these other provinces and states have done this they've they've mandated legally required the local municipality to change their zoning to allow these as of right right so that when individual applications come in all they would need is a building permit uh, they wouldn't need a rezoning. And that's one of the reasons why none of this housing gets built. Nobody, it never pencils to, to go through a rezoning process to do this kind of thing. It's just far too expensive and time-consuming. So thus, you never get this kind of housing. So they're okay. trying to get past that barrier. And one of the things that the mayor said in his quote is something that I've been saying for years, which is that what I like about this kind of ground-oriented gentle density is it's, it may involve speculators. We know that but it doesn't involve big developers. It does involve individual decisions being made by individual property owners, uh, yeah. just like the laneway housing exercise did. You have a choice to build a laneway house or not build a laneway house. Right. So uh, I like the fact that it's not about big developers, but you do have to analyze the effect it has on land value because I think you frankly want to keep the big developers out of it and, and have this be a decision being made by individual residents about their lot, okay. about their home. It's an interesting issue. Brent, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about BC's overwhelmed emergency response system now, the ECOM 911 system. This is the call center system that dispatches an ambulance and paramedics in an emergency. They are understaffed. And as we saw in the deadly heat dome back in June, this comes with a devastating cost of human lives. People who died because of that heat wave amid reports that people waited for hours in some cases for an ambulance. Now newly revealed internal documents show the crisis in BC's emergency response system was building even before 
the heat dome struck BC. I've got Liberal leader Shirley Bond standing by on that. But first, have a listen to this. This is BC's chief coroner here, Lisa Lapointe, talking about the impact of that heat dome back in June. From June 25th through July 1st, the province experienced 815 sudden and unexpected deaths. And those are deaths that um, the coroners uh, received reports of. We've now had a, a chance to look at the sort of the preliminary information on those 815 deaths and have determined that as of this date, 570 of them were uh, due to the heat. So, um, but for the heat, the extreme heat that, that the um, individual experienced, they would not have died on that day. Um, really, really tragic. So many families, um, you know, uh, left uh, devastated and um, something we had never, ever seen before in this province. Okay, Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe there talking about the hundreds of deaths during the heat dome back in late June. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Shirley Bond, Liberal MLA, Prince George Valemount. She is the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the BC legislature. Shirley, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Okay, let's talk about these FOI documents that you've uncovered here that show that this system was in turmoil here even before that heat dome struck back in June. What did you find out here in these documents? Well, first of all, the words of the coroner were devastating to listen to, and they were very wow. accurate. The the really tragic part is that the emails that were released through a Freedom of Information request that we made demonstrate that there was a frantic attempt to get the government's attention. There was an analysis that, in fact, public safety was at risk, that overwhelming vo- uh, volume uh, was a problem at least 12 months ahead of that, uh, so this was really a, a desperate attempt on behalf of 911 uh, and ECOM to get the government's attention. Yeah, and if we take a look at some of the, the individual emails and documents that you've uncovered here, let's talk about the one on June 3rd of this year, and this is weeks before the heat dome, and mm-hmm. this is from an executive director in the ECOM system writing to colleagues uh, saying that, Uh, I'll quote it directly here. The message we need to land with the BC Ambulance Service is the answer delays are compromising service delivery, compromising public safety overall. This is even before, this is weeks before the heat dome. They knew that public safety was being compromised. That's true, Mike. And if you look at the series of emails that, uh, that we received through FOI, we know that there were alarm bells ringing as far back as, as 12 months before. And I think the thing that most British Columbians find absolutely staggering is that we live in British Columbia, and when you dial 911, you would expect that someone will respond. Uh, we, you know, we saw information that actually pointed out that, uh, that there were at times 200 calls waiting in the queue to be assigned an ambulance. We saw large service regions like Delta and Richmond where there may have been one dispatcher when there should have been uh, more than 20 of them. So, you know, this was a problem that should not have come as a surprise to the government. And instead, we get defensive responses. You know, this is an event that had tragic outcomes. I am heartsick about it that we lost, you know, 569 British Columbians um, and there should have been an urgent response. Uh, and the fact is, there were warnings. 
Yeah, I think very clearly these documents show that there were there were warnings before this happened. And, and when you take a look at some of the email chains that were passing back and forth during the heat dome, so this is during the crisis, you got hundreds of people dying. And man, and it's, it's pretty gut-wrenching to read some of these emails because you can tell, like, people are just frantic. You know, they're, they're just writing emails that the system is 100% maxed out. There are hundreds of people waiting uh, to try and get an ambulance. And what did you take away from those emails? They were, people were just, what, asking for help? Or what were they trying to achieve there? Well, there was, this, there was a sense of desperation. And I want to be really clear about this. We care about and celebrate the work that people on the front lines do every day. This is not their issue. You can sense the anxiety and the angst that people had. And in fact, in one of them, they suggested that perhaps they should hold a press conference to actually try to get the government's attention. I think one of them says that the government needs to get in this discussion. And, and for, for me, you know, it is time for the government to be honest with British Columbians and recognize that the response was not adequate that they had warning, and for a premier to suggest at, at, you know, his comments that, you know, fatalities are a part of life and that that we need, British Columbians need to take personal responsibility. The tragic part of this is that warning bells were sounded. There was desperation at 911 Ecom because they were trying to do their job. And in fact, the outcome we know now is the tragic loss of many British Columbians. So, you know, it is, um, from my perspective, this is a story that should not go away. This is a story that we need to be, on behalf of those British Columbians who lost their lives, we need to continue to press for more work to be done by this government. And at, at, at the least, they need to recognize that warning bells were sounded uh, and they should have done more. Speaking to BC Liberal leader Shirley Bond about this uh, this trove of internal documents uh, just released under Freedom of Information here, showing the problems in BC's 911 emergency response system. And you know, I've talked to Health Minister Adrian Dix about this issue on the show, and he acknowledges that there were problems, there were challenges, mistakes were made, but that the government is moving to correct it. So. You know, you've got this government saying that they're hiring 85 new paramedics, they're hiring 30 dispatchers, they're getting 22 new ambulances up and running. Is that adequate for you, or what else do you think needs to be done at this point? No, I don't think it's adequate, because first of all, you know, we know that the warning bells were sounded earlier, so we could have seen that investment earlier in this process. And yes, I do recognize the government has provided additional resources, but we are still hearing about ambulance delays. We are still hearing that there are problems on the ground. British Columbians expect to live in a province when you are told to dial 911 that somebody should respond. And again, it's not the men and women on the ground. You know, there needs to be uh, an aggressive response to this. And we need to recognize that, you know, people shouldn't have to call a cab to get to the emergency ward. And that's how serious it is. And it's just a pattern that's developing. And, And Mike, you know, the other part of this we would not be having this conversation, you and I, if we did not have access to freedom of information. This story would never have been told. So we have ongoing concerns of our, about our ability to press for changes in the system if we can't figure out what's going on behind the scenes. So yeah. to me, there are two stories at play here. One yeah. is the heat dome, the other is FOI. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, this is a government that is bringing in some uh, changes to the freedom of information system, mm-hmm. including talking about uh, application fees and that kind of thing. And, and, and I think they're rightly getting roasted for that. And I think this is uh, 
a, a very clear example of the importance of uh, freedom of information in our province that you know we can get this kind of information and find out what was going on behind the scenes anytime i talk to adrian dix on this or premier john horgan you know it, it, it will get political too i mean they'll turn around and say well you know the the previous liberal government that you were part of did not do much better when it comes to the paramedic service and the ambulance service and that they inherited a system that had been underfunded by the liberals uh, in the previous government what do you say to that well, first of all, I think we need to look at the facts. When we were when we were government, the budget for emergency health services went up by 170 percent. We went from 148 million to 401 million dollars. We added paramedics. We actually, uh, in March of 2017, we put 91 million dollars in to improve ambulance response times. To suggest we did nothing is inaccurate. And and you know, here's the thing, Mike. This is a premier that is now a two-term premier. He has had four years. And let, let's be clear, what this, uh, this series of emails and documents shows is that the problem developed more substantively 12 months prior to the heat dome. So it is time for them to stand up, take some responsibility. I acknowledge that they have made some steps, but it's not enough. British Columbians deserve better. And, and you know, these, this, this email sequence just proves that there were well, warning bells being sounded. Well, I think that is the key point here, is that what we saw in late June with this heat dome was this unprecedented, record-setting heat wave. We have never mm-hmm. seen heat like that in British Columbia, and we all understand that. But I think what these documents trace is a, a building crisis, and people in the system, even before this mm-hmm. heat dome struck we're saying like look we have got major problems here there are delays in dispatching ambulances this is even before the weather turned hot and deadly and something needs to be done about it public safety is being compromised now that's spelled out in these emails among these healthcare officials did that is there any indication that that got all the way up to the chain to the minister's office or the premier's office did they know about this Well, I can't imagine that they didn't. And, you know, uh, but but what concerns me the most is the the distress and the anxiety that these people felt in terms of being able to deliver for British Columbians. And, you know, to get get to the point where you you feel like you have to, you know, where you have to call a press conference to get the government's attention, you know, this is all part of a system that ultimately feeds information up to the government and then the government is responsible for so, you know, this is, this is just another example of, of an unwillingness to grapple with the issues. You know, when you have a premier that calls, um, you know, that, that says fatalities are a part of life, I mean, you know, we, we can agree to disagree on lots of things, and I do with the premier regularly in the legislature, but that comment alone has, has really shaped a lot of people's concerns about the response. Uh, you know, shrug it off. Fatalities are a part of life. Well, oh, he, apolo- he apologized for that, though, right? He well, in the end of the day, it. he shouldn't have said it, and we continue yeah. to have those kinds of comments from from the and and he he apologized under pressure from people who realized, you know, this, this is just not an acceptable response. Bottom line is, people were frantic that the system yeah. was becoming overwhelmed. And they wanted to make sure that they were able to provide the response that British Columbians deserve. My, my, you know, my secondary concern is we would not know about this at yeah, all right. under the current uh, FOI suggestions that are in the legislature today. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right, here we go with permanent paid sick days in B.C. That's the goal of the paid sick days campaign in our province. 
the John Horgan government has promised to eliminate it. How many paid sick days should you receive per year? Should it be three paid sick days a year, five a year? How about 10 paid sick days a year? Can employers afford a program like this right now? Will employees abuse this benefit? Let's discuss now what an awesome panel we've got for you on this. Howard Levitt on the line. Howard is a senior partner at Levitt Shake. They are an employment and labor lawyers firm. Howard, thanks for coming on again. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Thanks for doing it. Also on the line is Laird Cronk, president of the BC Federation of Labor. Laird, thank you for doing this today. Hey, good morning, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, Laird, let me go to you first. You've been very active on this file campaigning. You're looking for 10 paid sick days a year, right? We are, yeah. And we know the government's passed legislation that January 1st, 2022, there will be paid sick leave in uh, British Columbia for workers which is really good for them and really good for the resiliency of our businesses. No more uh, closures, no more spreading of disease from workers that can't afford to stay home when they're sick. But Mike, to your question, we're calling on 10 days. We've looked around and said, where have they done this in the world? Who's done this and has it been successful? And it turns out that most of the OECD countries have two weeks of paid sick leave or more for their workers. So for example, in Australia and New Zealand, there's 10 days paid sick leave by employers. In Sweden, there's 14. In Germany, there's 30. So we know that wow. this works. We know their economies work. And that's why we think 10, and let's, let's be clear, 10 would be over a year, period. And in our BC Fed plan we've put to the government, you would start with three days and then earn for every 35 hours another hour up to 10 days for the year. You may not take any of them, but you may need it once or twice for the flu or even for COVID symptoms so that you're not spreading that in the workplace, shutting down your business, making other workers and their families possibly sick. And in the COVID era, we know that can have tragic results. And we know okay. workers have been going to work when they're ill if they can't afford to stay home. Okay, let's go to Howard Levitt on this. Howard Laird says that a lot of other countries are, are doing this, so why shouldn't we do it too? Your thoughts? Well, I can't speak to other countries, and there's obviously real productivity issues with some of the countries he's spoken of. And they're in a different climate financially. But here's the bottom line. Most people aren't sick 10 days a year. But one thing we know with certainty, and doing a lot of type of agreements with, with lots of employers across country, including BC, I see this all the time. You can go five days, sick days a year. Everybody takes five days, sick days a year. You give them 10, they take 10. You give them 15, you give 50. Not because they're sick, but because they can. And marginal employers simply can't afford that. And the other thing is, if people take 10 days off a year, they're going to take time of their own device, and unplanned days off has a much bigger impact on productivity than, say, 10 days vacation, because you know in advance when it will be taken, and therefore you can plan. There won't be shutdowns, there won't be emergency overtime because people suddenly don't show up. It's much more ruinous upon employers. But the biggest concern I have is what I've just expressed, that... If you give 10 days, everybody will take 10 days. Well, people, they'll just lie. Just... I appreciate the point. Yeah. I appreciate the point. The employees coming in when they're sick, but they won't do that because employees who come in these days sick with COVID symptoms, they're going to get fired. And that's a much bigger incentive to not come into work than a paid sick day, than okay. one day's pay. Okay, Laird Cronk, what do you say to that, that employee, employees would just abuse this privilege and just take these days even if they're not sick? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So much to say on that topic. Look, 
workers are still unfortunately coming to work sick in British Columbia with COVID and other illnesses. 270 approved cases through WCB in September alone for workplace transmission of, of COVID. So, mm. look, Howard talks about workplaces where there's union collective agreements in place. A lot of those have paid sick leave. Those are agreements and processes that are fairly negotiated between the workers and the employer. It's not going to be a big change in those workplaces, this legislation. What we're really talking about is the tens of thousands of workers that fall in the low-wage category that keep you and I safe, you and I at home, deliver food to us. Uh, they're tellers at the grocery store. They work in long-term care homes. Uh, 89% of workers making 30000 or less have no access to paid sick leave. They can't work from home like Howard can and like I can and probably like you can, right? They can't afford to take a sick day off. It's the perfect storm for them. To Howard's point about workers getting fired for coming in with COVID symptoms, the truth is when these workers get, have access to 10 days of paid sick leave, they're not going to abuse them. We've seen proof of this in New York and San Francisco, where employers have reported back a year later that it was negligible impact to the bottom line of paid sick leave in those jurisdictions. Because non-union workers are not going to say to the boss, I get 10 days off now, see ya they will be fired. And under the Employment Standards Act, the employer has the right in British Columbia to fire you without even giving you a reason for firing you. Okay, okay. So Howard. rights violation. So what we're, what we're going to see is workers that actually, for the first time, who can't afford to stay home, will take them when they're legitimately sick. Let's be clear. The vast majority of employers in this province want a, 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 um, a workforce that's loyal to them, that's hardworking, and they want a good yeah. relationship. The vast majority of workers want to go to work and get paid and not be in trouble with their employer and do a hard day's job. Okay, Howard. People will not be abusing this in the non-union sector. I absolutely guarantee it. And we've seen Howard Levitt, let me go to, let me go to Howard. Let me get some equal time. Gave, the reason I say to the unionized sector is because that is what happens already in the unionized sector. Unionized employees get 10, for example, get 10 or 15 days sick leave. And invariably, every employee in the place takes 10 or 15 days or is called a sucker by the others for not doing it. In terms of being fired in the non-union sector, if they take the time off, well, that's what the legislation will prevent. They can't fire them because the legislation is going to say you have the right to these 10-day sick pay, and if you get fired for that, you're breaking the legislation. There's serious sanctions for companies. And the reality is, once you give the 10 days, of course they're going to take it off, just like we do in the non-union sector. Okay. Hey, Laird, let me ask you this. I, I already, on an earlier show, I interviewed an official from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business in British Columbia. They represent small business in the province. And they say, look, we just can't afford this. 10 sick days a year, like, come on, we're coming out of a difficult economic period here during this pandemic. Don't wallop us with this. How are employers supposed to afford this? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, one, Mike, is you're right. A survey did come out, and it is a survey. And I think it fairly reflects that employers are concerned about something that they, they haven't seen in place yet before. So fair game. Look, we've done a proper uh, poll through Research Co., uh, a well-respected firm in Canada, that showed 86% of British Columbians across the board, across gender lines, across um, geographical locations, support employer 10 days paid sick leave so the workers don't have to come to work sick if they can't afford to stay home. The government of British Columbia, Mike, has provided over, uh, done a really good job here of over $400 million in support to businesses specifically affected by COVID. 20,000 businesses have accessed grants of between ten dollars and $30,000. We know there have been rent subsidies, there have been wage subsidies, there have been BC Hydro uh, subsidies on those costs. Our economy in British Columbia is actually leading the country. We're leading the country in job growth. 
there are many employers who are doing exceptionally well in COVID in okay. the supply chain, for example, grocery stores. So, you know, I think it's good to support business, but we need to also make sure that they don't face the cost of their business shutting down because somebody couldn't afford to stay home and their workforce got sick and it's a free COVID outbreak and okay, how, for 10 days. Time. How you, want you, want to talk about, you want to talk about workplaces shutting down. 10 days sick pay is 4% higher wage costs right off the bat, plus the additional cost of, of plants shutting down because there aren't workers there to do it if they don't have enough people coming in or overtime pay. So it's probably a 5 or 6% cost. 5 or 6% added to the additional wage cost to businesses in BC is going to have many businesses shutting down. They're marginal at best. They're thinking of shutting down as it is. Many are shutting down as it is after COVID. Another 5 or 6% payroll just for this alone, especially environment where very few employees are going to be sick for 10 days, but they'll take okay. the time off anyway. Look, of course, voters support it. $10 a day sick, $10 for a day daycare, um, free dental bills. You, you give anybody things for free, people will put up their hands and say, how can I get in? Same with 10-day sick pay. But is it good public policy? All right, welcome back. It's the Great Paid Sick Days debate with my guests, Laird Cronk and Howard Levitt. Lots of phone calls on this one. Let's go to Judy in White Rock. Hi, Judy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. What do you think? I've been in business 30 years as an owner-operator in seniors' housing. It is an industry protected by the unions. I agree with the gentleman who said there's always the good guys who do way over for their job every day, and there is a glut that are protected by the unions who will take absolute advantage of this. Along with other little businesses, they cannot afford a 10-day. Do remember as well, Germany and others also work not only on a difference of location, but economic base. There is a huge difference here. Okay, thanks for the call. Laird Kronk, what do you say to that? Uh, well, thanks for the call. Look, uh, again, what we see out there in the real world when we look at um, places that have put this in place is it's been a negligible cost for employers. They've reported that back because, again, in the non-union sector, workers are not going to say, you know, I'm putting down my um, spatula that I'm uh, flipping this burger on. I get 10 days off now. They're not going to be around with that employer, nor do they want that. They want to work hard and they want to be paid. Mike, I want to dispel the myth that all businesses are opposed to this. We had 25 businesses sign on to an open letter, 25 businesses to the government, and that's just the beginning, saying 10 days makes sense. We want our businesses mm. to be safe, and we want our workers traveling on transit to our businesses to be with other workers who have the same protections. Okay. I met a guy named Sam the other day in Victoria who owns four coffee shops, 2% Jazz Coffee. Yep. Non-union, small entrepreneur, he wants to see workers protected. There was an op-ed in the province today um, from Clayton Heights Sports and Therapy, the owner, uh, again saying the same thing. Community Savings Credit Union, 10 days for their employees, and they haven't seen abuse of the system. What they've seen is workers not making other workers sick. Okay, Howard Levitt. How first, first of all, businesses do not support it. You've told us already the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses adamantly opposed to it because they say a lot of their small businesses won't be able to continue to exist if their wage costs go up another 5 or 6%. They're marginal as it is. Secondly, in terms of people putting down their spatula, if they're told you could take 10 days off a year and claim to be sick, they'll take 10 days off a year and claim to be sick, and they will not be terminated because they can't be terminated because that's what the legislation says. And employers know enough not to violate the Employment Standards Act because they get hammered when they do. Yeah, I mean, you can, like, you, you're saying you can't fire someone for taking sick days. Correct. That's, that's what saying, the yeah. law is. That's yeah. the law is going to be. And by the way, New York is not 10 days, it's five days. 
Okay, and let's it's go to only a 2021 legislation, so we don't know what the impact will be out of, of even five days. Back to the phone line, Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Hi, Mike. Uh, yeah, my my point is, if you're sick, you're sick. You stay home. It's a safe, it brings up a safety issue. If you're if you have a bad flu and you're aching all over, you can't you know you can't go to work. You need that time. Your body needs to rest. I mean, uh, if you're really sick, it makes you dizzy. You know, you have to stay home until that is completely. You know, until you're completely better, it's a safety issue. If you want a doctor's note, get a doctor's note. You know, there's, okay. there's proof. Thank you well, for taking my call. Thanks for the call. Well, I think that's a, an interesting point that he just raised there. Laird Cronk, let me go to you on that. Like, do you think if someone is sick, they should be required to produce a doctor's note to prove it? Well, we've seen we've seen different jurisdictions take different approaches to that, Mike. One of the concerns that's consistently raised in the healthcare industry is, or do you want to plug up the industry with people paying 40 or $50 and a doctor spending the time to sign doctor's notes um, so that they can access this? And so there's, you know, people on both sides of the issue. But I really want to go back and say um, the difficulty right now that people don't also recognize sometimes is that when workers, like, first of all, if you don't have a paid sick leave plan, there's a pretty good chance that workers are coming to work sick, particularly in low-wage situations, because they can't afford not to pay the rent or the bills. And what happens is you're paying them. They have a fever. They're not telling you. They're afraid uh, to not pay the bills. And the presenteeism of them being there, really smart folks have studied this across North America, non-presenteeism, because you're feeling like crap, trying to get your job done, trying to pay your bills, cost the employer a whole bunch of money as well. And okay. to the caller's point, yeah. if you stay home, it's proven proven that you get, um, you get um, better quicker, so you're not spreading it, and you're getting better quicker, and you can get back to work. L- Howard Levitt. Look, if somebody's sick, they should stay home. That's not what we're debating here. An employer should have the right to request a doctor's note, and they will do that if they think the employee is, frankly, not really sick. But the problem even with that is doctors had notes like toilet paper in the pre-COVID, in the pre-COVID toilet paper era when it was inexpensive. It's really easy to get a doctor's note from virtually any clinic because the doctors don't know themselves if they're sick. They tell them there's – how can they, they – there's seldom objective tests for most sicknesses. But if an employer comes and if an employee comes to work sick, they know they will be fired for cause in the COVID era. And that is a far greater incentive not to come to work than losing a day's pay. Okay. Oh, so got I, one. I don't think it's a realistic concern. Gentlemen, we got we just have one minute left here, sadly. So let me give you thirty seconds each here to wrap it up. Laird, go ahead and make your make your case there for ten paid sick days. Sure, Mike. We know um, we know we're going to have paid sick leave January first, twenty twenty two. We need to respect the workers who keep us safe, who keep us home. A lot of low wage workers out there who are going to work every day and are riding transit. They can't afford to stay home when they're sick because uh, they don't make enough money. They can't okay. pay the bills. They can't pay the rent. We Howard need to Levitt. Respect these workers. We're going to have a better economy. We're going to have uh, stronger, more robust workplaces. Happier workers. Workers that are safe, we're not going to spread it in the community. Okay, go ahead, Howard. We're not going to spread it to the problem with 10 days guaranteed sick pay is that everybody will take 10 days off sick or not, and businesses can't afford it, and you're going to have a lot okay. of unemployment resulting in businesses that doesn't go under.